here in Pittsburgh, one of the things that I think we are most passionate about are the Steelers. It might be an idol for us, but we, we love our football here. And one of the most iconic sports moments in Pittsburgh Steeler history was the AFC Divisional Game on December 23rd, 1972. Uh, in a game against the Oakland Raiders, the Steelers are down, right? They, there's like 30 seconds left on the clock. Quarterback Terry Bradshaw, some of you guys know where I'm going with this. Quarterback Terry Bradshaw passes uh, throws a pass, it's deflected, it is inches away from hitting the ground and being an incomplete pass, and fullback Franco Harris scoops that thing up, runs it for a touchdown, wins, wins the game. Renowned sportscaster Myron Cope, on one of his broadcasts, called it the immaculate reception. It was a play that was so special that its name implied that there must have been something miraculous about it. And the name, the Immaculate Reception, was meant to be a pun based on the theological doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, which also described a miraculous birth brought about by the power of God. Now, I say that, and you might think you know where I'm going with that, but if you weren't raised Roman Catholic or didn't have a lot of exposure to the Roman Catholic Church, you might think that the Immaculate Conception describes the birth of Jesus Christ. It doesn't. I know for years that's what I just assumed it was, right? Because what other miraculous birth was there in history? So in Catholic theology, the Immaculate Conception is actually about the birth of Mary, the mother of Jesus. They hold that Mary was sinless, and so as a result, she had to be born without sin, therefore produced by a miraculous birth. Now, you know, as a church, we are a Protestant church. We are not Roman Catholic. We do deviate quite significantly from a number of Catholic doctrines um, on there. So we, we don't necessarily hold to Mary's sinlessness. We, we believe that there was only one person who was uh, sinless, and that is Jesus. Um, but by way of introduction, I mean, this, the, the creed, as we will see this morning, does talk about the miraculous birth of Jesus, the circumstances. This morning, we're going to see that Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. As has been our tradition the last few weeks, let's add this to what we know of the creed and proclaim it together. And so let me find this and put it up on the screen. Um, follow along, recite along with me. Friends, what do you believe? We believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. I'll leave that up there for you. We'll, we'll keep adding to that each week. So this morning, we're going to look at the, 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 the bottom half of that screen, that he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And so there's two phrases that we're going to take a look at. What does it mean that Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit? And secondly, why was it so important that the creed highlights that Jesus was born of a virgin? And so we'll, we'll take a little bit of time exploring what it means that Jesus was fully human. We talked about that last week, that Jesus was both fully divine and fully human. Not 50-50, 100% God, 100% divine, and 100% human. And then as usual, we'll close with some application. So first, what does it mean that Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit? I want to share with you a, a biblical text that uh, shares the same information as the creed. Last week, I highlighted a, a passage from the Gospel of Matthew, 
where an angel appears to Joseph to, to share the name of Jesus, to, to kind of proclaim, foreshadow this miraculous birth. This morning, I'm going to read from Luke, Luke chapter 1, which is the angelic appearance to Mary. So Luke 1, 26 to 38 says this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to, the city of, to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed, that's kind of like engaged, to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled by the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. And he will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, what I just read is not terribly different from the, the themes that we saw last week, the naming of Jesus, the announcement that the, this child would be the Son of God. But let's see Mary's response, picking up at verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing is impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed her. So as I said, in the first few verses of the angelic declaration, there's a lot of similarities between what the angel says to Joseph and what the angel says to Mary. But in light of the proclamation, Mary is grounded. She's like, this is all well and good, but how is this supposed to happen? Right? I, I'm, I'm a virgin. The biblical text goes out of its way to make it clear that Joseph and Mary were not physically intimate with one another prior to the arrival of Jesus. Even 2,000 years ago, they might not have the advances that we have nowadays with technology and science and medicine, but they, they knew what had to happen in order to get pregnant and have a child. Verse 35 is the closest biblical text to what we have on the screens in, in, in line what, you know, with the creed that we're looking at this morning. It says that Jesus, you know, Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 35, the angel explains to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. That's what we're told. We're not given any glimpses of the mechanism for the conception. We don't know with precision what the DNA of Jesus was comprised of or what the raw materials of that, that first zygote was made from. I don't know about you, but when I read and when I think about this and kind of try to dig down deep, I, I start to get a little uncomfortable when I look too closely at this exchange. While we don't know precisely what happened, there was a degree of invasiveness, a vulnerability to Mary to have God overshadow her and plant this child in her body. There was a deep intimacy of that process that had nothing to do with, with physical intimacy. Kind of reminded me of some of the conversations that Sarah and I had 
before our youngest child, Catherine, came into our lives. I, w- I was one of three kids, and I, I had this nostalgia uh, in my mind about Sarah and I having three kids as well. And, and at the time, you know, Sarah wasn't quite as on board as I was about the possibility of having a third child. Right? We, we talked about it a lot, and I remember Sarah telling me, she's like, you just don't understand why this decision is hard for me. I thought I understood the costs. Austin at the time was about four years old. He was out of diapers. He was sleeping through the night. He was starting preschool. You know, I wasn't looking forward to, you know, restarting that clock, going back to those sleepless nights, walking around in a fog during the day. Now, Sarah might have been concerned about those issues, but she shared with me that if we were to get pregnant again, she was sacrificing more than I understood. She would be sharing her body with someone else growing another human being, right? Her ups and downs of pregnancy would be intertwined with this child inside of her. She would be quite literally giving of herself in a way that I just, I could not understand because I couldn't experience it. In, re- in reality, like I, I, still, I still don't get it. You know, I, I uh, sat down uh, Thursday with Sarah to ask her permission. Anytime that I want to talk about, our, you know, our family or, or Sarah, I want to make sure that I ask per- permission first. Um, and the way that I tried to, you know, summarize, like, you know, remember when we were going through this and you shared about how this was hard for you? And, I, you know, summarized some of, some of why I thought it was a struggle for her. She's like, you know, uh, she's like, just why what you just said, you still show to me. Like, you don't understand. You still don't get it. Right? I don't. I don't have. I might have like an intellectual grasp to some extent of, of the swirl of emotions that she was, you know, identifying with that she was experienced, but I still can't identify what she was going through. We, of course, as you all who know me, know that we had that third child, and, you know, Catherine is such a delight, we wouldn't have had it any other way, but, you know, Sarah was the one who was grounded in counting the cost in that process much more than I was. This is what's being asked of Mary, to give up so much of herself for the fetal development of this child, She's being asked to put her reputation on the line. You know, you know, you know word was going to travel. You know there was gossip back in those days about this unwed teenage mother. God was asking something enormous of Mary. After weighing these emotions that she was dealing with, we see the response of Mary in verse 38. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary gave her consent to God. She shows trust in God's plan for her life, even though it was going to upend the life that she thought that she was going to live. Maybe the way that she wanted to live, she knew it was going to upend it. But I think this is a really important point in the story because we are currently living in an age where the misogyny of our culture is coming front and center. We are seeing time and time again with testimony, the ways in which women have been demeaned and abused by men and the broader culture. And we need to see God's respect for Mary's boundaries and consent here. Now, we can't really play, like, it's hard to play the what-if game, like, what if I had done something different? What would God have done? But I am convinced, seeing the character of God in the scriptures, that if Mary had declined and said, Lord, that's all great, but thanks, but no thanks. 
I fully believe that God would have respected and not forced this upon her. Because we see this in the, throughout the Old Testament. If you've been following along in that Bible reading plan, we've been going through Exodus, and what did we see? God said to, to, to Moses, Moses, I want you to be my mouthpiece. Moses said, ah, I don't think so, God. Moses says, no, 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 I am going to be with you, so be my mouthpiece. And Moses is like, send someone else. Finally, in the end, even though God might be a little frustrated with Moses, he, he relents. He's like, all right, I'll raise someone else up. Your brother Aaron, you know, I'll have him be the mouthpiece instead. Right? We see this with Queen Esther, the words of Mordecai to Queen Esther. She was unwilling to take the risk to put her life on the line to advocate for her people. God would raise someone else up. He'd find another way to do it, provide deliverance another way. But Mary's decision was based upon her trust in God. Trust in the goodness of God in writing her story. I think this is the first take home for us this morning because I believe that there is something that God wants to do in all of our lives, something God wants to do in your life. And it might upend your life the way that you know it. It might feel invasive to us. But will we share the courage and trust of Mary to give the Lord permission to have his way in our lives, to do what he would do? At the end of the message, as usual, we'll talk about application. We're going to think about what does it mean that Jesus Christ was this divine, was God taking on human flesh in our world? What might that mean for us? We're going to talk about what does it mean for us to follow his model of moving towards that object that we're being called to, that person that we're being called to. And so in order for this to take root in our lives, I think we need to have the attitude of Mary. This is scary it requires me to give up control of what I want in my life to look like. But do we, in, in the end, do we trust that God is going to write a better story for us than we are able to write for ourselves? I know I got a little bit in the weeds on the conception of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, but I wanted us to connect with the vulnerability of Mary, right? The vulnerability that she experienced and exhibited in order to participate in the wondrous work of God in her midst. That second line of the creed says that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. There's a lot in this statement. Right? When, when the angel appeared to Joseph, as recorded in Matthew 1, he said that this, this whole interaction of Mary being a virgin was meant to fulfill a prophecy. This is Matthew 1.23 that says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. Remember, we, we talked about naming last week and how names are, are, are important, right? Jesus or Yeshua in, in the Hebrew, right? This prophecy is, is harking back to Isaiah 7.15. It's one of those passages that, you know, is read every year at Christmas time. It's a prophecy that was written some 700 years before the birth of, uh, of Jesus. And it initially applies to something else. We're not going to get in the weeds there um, for the sake of time. We'll just keep going, but we can talk about that maybe another time. The virgin birth of Jesus was important, and not just to fulfill a prophecy from 700 years ago. The gospel writers go out of their way to affirm and confirm the historicity of the virgin birth, that it was reliable. Jesus was more than a mere man. Right? His miraculous birth by a virgin showcases the, the, the dual divine nature, right? the dual nature of both divine and human that we looked at last week. Right? This birth was miraculous. This wasn't a natural pregnancy through Joseph. 
But at the same time, it was also physical. It was earthly. It was, it was common. Right? Jesus developed as a fetus in the womb of Mary and was born in probably a mess of pain and blood as happens with childbirth. Do we think, do we think about that in the birth of Jesus? It was probably, they, we sing silent night. It probably was not a silent night, let me tell you. Right? Jesus was unique. He was the son of God. But in that uniqueness, he was not distant. He drew close to us. He drew close to those who he longed to save. So I want us to consider what the humanity of Jesus means. For eternity, think about this. We often don't think, well, what what was Jesus doing before the incarnation, his birth? For eternity, prior to his conception, Jesus existed with the other members of the Trinity in infinite presence and infinite love. Jesus has always existed in some form, whatever that substance is that God exists within. But when the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, that all changed. The divine took on flesh and became eternally connected with it. Even now, as Jesus has ascended to heaven, he is in heaven as flesh and blood advocating on our behalf. Jesus bound himself to human flesh. But as such, he also lived a life as the truest human ever to live. I mean, look at it this way. Like a part of what it means to be human is to feel emotions. Jesus experienced these emotions. He felt compassion. He felt anger. But he also felt them in ways that were true to his nature, to his sinlessness. He experienced the emotions the way that they were meant to be felt. We feel compassion, but it's an emotion that we have a tendency to to underreact to. We grow calloused to the things that ought to move us. But Jesus saw people hurting and his heart broke for them. We feel anger, but that's an emotion that we have a tendency to overreact with. We have a tendency to get hot-headed and and explode on our enemies or even explode on our friends. Jesus felt anger, and it was real, but it didn't diminish the image of God and his opponents. Even our emotions, one of those things that we say that it is to be made in the image of God, even our emotions have been skewed because of the fall. Our feelings are disordered because of sin. In Jesus, we have a model of what it means to be truly human, right? He took on life and lived the way that we ought to have, but that we've been unable to because of our selfish rebellion against God. The scriptures time and time again affirm the sinless nature of Jesus, not that he just lived a moral life, but he lived the only moral life. He was perfect, And that perfection was part of the equation that makes salvation effective for us. Paul, speaking of this great transaction that takes place from God, he wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He said, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin. He made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But as we talk about the virgin birth, there are many in our day and age who, right, let's be honest, within and outside the church are products of the Enlightenment. 
There's a skepticism about the virgin birth. Many outside, many inside the church have a desire to demythologize the scriptures, the Bible stories. What that means is they, we want to find non-miraculous ways to explain the version of Christianity that we see in front of us. But in light of the overwhelming power of God, I am unsure why we have trouble considering the plausibility of an event like this. The truth is, is if we deny the virgin birth of Jesus Christ because it's this miracle that we just like can't wrap our minds around, then we might as well deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus died, was dead for 40 odd hours, and then came to life again, not just in his normal body, but with a perfected body that would, not, would never get sick or grow old or die, like that should be more incredulous to us than, than the concept of the virgin birth. And the fact that Jesus said, Paul says it, but applies it, that the type of body that Jesus had, we will one day have when we are raised to glory as well, we might as well throw, if we're unwilling to accept the virgin birth because we can't explain it by natural means. We might as well just throw out the rest of that as well. Because there, you can't get there as opposed to miraculous means as well. The truth is, if we deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, that puts a lot of our theology and our very selves in all kinds of danger. So I encourage you to, to you know, even in the midst of the product of enlightenment, God is true. One last thing. Uh, about the virgin birth before we move on. The scriptures teach that while Jesus was born of a virgin, he also had brothers and sisters. One of those brothers was James, the leader of the Jerusalem church, the guy who wrote the letter that you see near the end of the Bible called James, sharing his name. And this is another area that we as a church break from a uh, typical Roman Catholic tradition. They uphold the perpetual virginity of Mary, that she and Joseph never consummated their marriage. They explain the biblical texts that, because the Bible does talk about Jesus having brothers and sisters. Uh, Mark 6, 3, I think it is, uh, is one of the, the places. And, and they explain those passages away by saying that they were kids of Joseph from a prior marriage. So they're kind of like Jesus' stepbrothers. Um, but the Bible doesn't really, it doesn't give us clear indication one way or the other. But most, most Protestants believe that after Jesus was born, that Mary and Joseph got married, continued having kids, building their family together. All right, let, let's turn to application, where the rubber meets the road. We've already seen Mary's courageous trusting of God for his plan in life, in her life, welcoming him to do whatever he might want to do through her. What I'd like us to think about for the rest of our time is what does this look like in our lives as it pertains to the incarnation? Right? The incarnation, the birth of Jesus, involves him leaving his place of privilege, leaving his place of comfort in order to come to earth to save us. Not because we were des deserving of salvation, not because he was obligated to, but because he wanted to. It was in alignment with his great love for us that Jesus left his place on high and moved into the neighborhood, in the words of Eugene Peterson. Incarnation is a process of moving towards something or someone. Maybe to use one of the idioms of our day, having some skin in the game. Maybe you could say that's a pun, right? Because Jesus quite literally had some skin in the game. Now, I know many of you hear me with some regularity uh, talk about that once we've been redeemed by Jesus Christ, God invites us to participate with what he's doing in the world. 
right, that we get to be co-laborers with him, working with him to repair the world. But this isn't something that can be done from afar. It requires a move from us, moving towards whatever it is that God's called us to participate in, in his restoration. This week I heard the story of Richard Stearns. Stearns was a shrewd businessman who worked his way up uh, the chain in Parker Brothers. Uh, He said it was awesome when he was a VP, like literally his job was just playing these uh, kind of template sample board games and deciding which ones to, to publish first. Sounds like a dream job. He was the, the corporation's youngest president and CEO at the age of 33. Can you imagine that? Being CEO of Parker Brothers. We're not talking about like some small company, but a Fortune 5, I assume it's Fortune 500 company. He shifted jobs over the next few years. He ended uh, near the ends of his 30s as president and CEO of Lennox. I mean, this man was the epitome of what it meant to make it vocationally. He was responsible for the business of Lennox. What their business model is, is selling fine china to wealthy people. Like that, that's what his business was. He was driving around in his Jaguar company car. But in the late 1990s, God changed his career direction. He was being pursued by a headhunter and Stearns ended up quitting his job and took over as president of the Christian relief charity, World Vision. This guy who had lived a comfortable life who had never even been to Africa himself, said yes to God's invasive call in his life and gave up much of his comfort to do the kingdom work for so many children and families worldwide. One of his signature moves as a corporation was to devote significant resources to the AIDS pandemic in Africa, especially at a time when it was unpopular and quite stigmatized by American Christianity. As he was telling his story, They did all these these kind of business models, and everybody was like, we can't talk about AIDS. No one in the church will give to it. He's like, it doesn't matter. It's the right thing to do, and they did. Richard Stearns left his position of comfort and gave himself to the things of God at great cost to himself. How will you be obedient to the work that God wants to do in your life? Put another way, where are those places where God is calling you to be incarnational? To put some skin in the game in order to help alleviate the suffering of the marginalized or to push back the darkness in your communities? Right, just to get a little political in this, because you all know I love to get political, right? I spend a lot of time, I spent a lot of time over the last couple of years criticizing Trump, and I think um, rightfully so, but you know, I'm an equal opportunity offender. I would argue that this is the major deficiency in liberal progressivism. The political left often talks about wanting to care for the marginalized, whether this is government entitlements or universal health care, student debt forgiveness. But the flaw in their perspective is that they think throwing money at a problem is going to fix it. Like, when has that ever worked for anything? Many of these same progressive voices who say they want to care for the marginalized are themselves millionaires, or they live in gated communities, or they send their kids to the most prestigious schools that money can buy. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that, that those things are wrong or that those things completely invalidate their mission, right? But Jesus didn't just lob blessings from a distance. He didn't just throw some money at a problem, but he got in and he got his hands dirty in the process. The gospel, I believe, calls us to a different way of thinking about our rights and thinking about our comfort level. 
I want to encourage you this week. I know I've gone long. I'm sorry, I'm almost done. I want you to think this week, where can you move towards the hurting? Where can you help to provide a bridge of justice and righteousness that only the gospel can connect? And it's quite possible that that might cost you something in the process. It cost Jesus something to come here. Said another way, where is God calling you to step out of your comfort zone to help others for the sake of the gospel? Like Richard Stearns, it could be a change in career, right? Going from a cushy job, selling fine china to wealthy people, to seeing the AIDS crisis firsthand in Africa. But it might not be that. It could be the decision of where you choose to live, how you spend your money. It could be what you do with your free time. Recently, I was approached by big brothers and big sisters in the Western PA area. And right now, I was surprised when she shared this. Right now, Swissvale has the highest concentration of boys from the ages of 6 to 13 who are on the wait list for a big brother. Swissvale. I would not have guessed that. There are countless young boys blocks from our church where we are sitting right now who are looking for someone to mentor them. For six hours a month, we could be incarnational like Jesus. Moving towards a young boy in need, being a catalyst of transformation for them. I'm not saying that's what we have to do. I'm just trying to prime the pump, as you say. Get us thinking, what does it look like for us to step out of our comfort zone? to not hold our rights so close to the chest as we like to do, right? We're a product of our nation. America loves, loves her rights. But I think the gospel calls us to something a little bit different. I want to close with this. It's a classic verse from Philippians, and it shows the humility of Jesus, and it holds it, holds it as an example for each of us. I think it speaks for itself. Philippians 2, 4 to 11. Paul says, let each of you not, excuse me, let me say that again. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Don't just think about yourself, think about others. He continues, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, the most horrific way that you could have died in the ancient world. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, as we just sang this morning, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Join me in prayer. Lord, you have done wonders in our lives. I am blown away that you would not think of your rights and your privilege and hold them so tight-fisted that you would say, you know what, take care of yourself. But you were generous and gracious by moving towards us at great cost to yourself. May we see that as an example. May we be empowered by the power of your Holy Spirit to do the same thing. Lord, that we would invite the Holy Spirit to be invasive in our lives and our bodies as well in the places that you are calling us to move towards others. 
to put aside power, to put aside comfort, to put aside privilege in order to get in and get our hands dirty, to get some skin in the game, to see the restoration that you want to bring about in this world. Lord, may we continue to partner with you and may your glory reach the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.